have you ever played chess? You know, that game that you whip out to impress people and make them think you're super smart. The one that's kind of like checkers, except unnecessarily complicated. It can be a fun pastime, and for some, even a competitive sport. But underneath all the fanfare lurks some dangerous ideas. We're talking racist, classist, sexist, ableist ideas. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack, but we've got plenty of time. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Let's begin with a brief history of chess. Precursors to chess originated in areas of Asia, especially in India, a society that historically has had a strict social caste system. As Europeans began to explore the Asian continent, they brought chess back to the West and started working on our modern version of chess. I use modern loosely here as it took them over 500 years to standardize the rules. During 13th century Europe, chess was all the rage with the aristocracy. Philip II, Ivan the Terrible, Henry I all loved to play the game, and it soon became a symbol of wealth, knowledge, and power. This association has continued into the 21st century, though chess is now mostly popular as a competitive sport. So what about all these isms I claim that chess encompasses? It all comes down to the rules and setup of the game. The rules of chess are such that all the isms, racism, sexism, classism, and ableism, all work independently and interconnectedly and reflect how intersectional disability is. Disability scholar Kimberly Crenshaw argues that our dominant conceptions of discrimination conditions us to think about subordination as disadvantage occurring along a single categorical axis. However, as Aravellis so eloquently puts it, intersectionality accomplishes the formidable task of mediating multiple differences, as opposed to examining gender, race, class, and nation as separate systems of oppression Intersectionality explores how these systems mutually construct one another. So let's examine the rules together and analyze how they illustrate the intersectionality of disability. First of all, the two players are differentiated by two colors, black and white which just so happen to be two colors that have been racialized and reflect tensions between whites and people of color. To make it even better, white always goes first, without question. Obviously, this situates the white player as being superior to the black player and positions the white player as the one that is active and takes initiative, while the black player is relegated to being reactive. While there is the rhetoric of turn-taking within the game, the white player ultimately chooses the setup and limits the movement of the black player to being reactive. Here, we see race and ability being tied together. Speaking of moving, let's talk about ability. As the rules stand, ability and mobility increase as class status increases, inextricably tying the two spheres together. The pawn, the lowest piece on the board, can only move one space per turn, with the exception of its first turn when it can move two. It can only move on the vertical axis except to capture pieces diagonally, and it is the only piece that cannot move backwards. 
The knight and the bishop are on a similar social tier. The knight can move three spaces per turn in an L-shaped formation and is the only piece that can hop over occupied spaces. The bishop can move up to a whopping eight spaces per turn and moves along the diagonal. The rook comes next and can also move up to eight spaces per turn, but on the horizontal and vertical axes. The queen, long live the queen, can move up to eight spaces per turn in any one direction. That's right, our leading lady can move vertically, horizontally, diagonally, backwards, and forwards. And finally, the king, although he is only able to move one space per turn, is able to move in any one direction like the queen. Not only are class and ability tied together, but so is social and point value. As both class status and the ability to move increases, the point value of each piece increases, illustrating how people situated in more favorable positions along the lines of class and ability are valued more than others. The pawn is only worth one point, the knight and bishop worth three, the rook worth five, the queen worth nine, and the king costing the game. I want to take a moment to talk about the king and queen. The king technically cannot be captured, unlike the other pieces, and instead is put into a state known as checkmate, which ends the game. Being in checkmate means that the king cannot make any legal moves. He is, quite literally, disabled. So ideologically speaking, what does this mean? Here we see a masculinized character that heads the nation state becoming disabled and thus causing the downfall of the nation. This reflects our attitudes towards disability, masculinity, and the well-being of the nation, and illustrates how all three are inextricably bound together. In a nutshell, the king falls due to being disabled, loses his potency as a king, and thus the nation collapses as a result of the disablement. And what about the queen, our glorious queen, the only lady among this hyper-masculinized, fictitious world? The queen has the greatest mobility out of all the pieces, the highest point value, and is one of the most decisive pieces on the board in terms of winning the game. But what role does the queen actually play? Despite her power, the queen really only serves the role of protecting the king and the nation. Helen Colley describes this as being implicated as a source of labor power, and she explains how women are required for the creation, propagation, and protection of the nation state. The queen is the ultimate manifestation of this role. Further, her power only serves to make her an even bigger target on the board. Each player is constantly on the lookout for and on the attack for the other player's queen. This reflects how powerful femininity is seen as threatening and is thus eliminated by being disabled and restricted in movement through capture. There is a little something that exists within chess that I think needs to be talked about. Pawn promotion. Basically, if a pawn makes it to the other side of the board without being captured, then the pawn can be promoted to any previously captured piece that the player wants. Here we see an interesting intersection between class and ability. The pawn is valuable insofar that it is the only piece that is able to be promoted, and due to its remarkable show of ability. I mean, getting to the other end of the board is no easy feat. However, this value is immediately diminished due to the fact that it is exchanged immediately for a more mobile piece. 
Despite our recognition of the pond's value, which is based on ability and mobility, we simultaneously recognize its limits and thus want to have a piece that is more mobile. So what? We've gone through all of this. Why does any of it matter? More on this after a short break. The issue with chess is that it is a reflection of, as well as a way to propagate and obfuscate, the discriminatory ideologies of racism, classism, sexism, and ableism. Aravellas references Foucault in a lot of her writing and for good reason. Foucault helps explain how power works in society. Basically, society lives in a particular historical context, and our social norms, rules, laws, etc. are created by the people in power within this historical frame. Regarding chess specifically, the rules of the game were standardized during a time marked by strict and violent social relations, and were legitimated by those in power, kings, nobles, the wealthy, and so on. The problem is, the passage of time allows us to separate ourselves from our less enlightened ancestors, and thus causes us to see chess as being just a game. But the ideologies of days past are not so much in the past, and still work within the game and society today. The danger is that accepting the relationships of power as being normal, natural rules of the game and of life obfuscates the harmful ideologies behind it. So can these ideologies be taken out of the game while still maintaining the general structure? I'd like to make an attempt, so let's get to it. This is Chess Reimagined. First, let's address the differentiation between the two players. Instead of a black versus white system, I propose a material-based approach say, smooth versus dotted, wood versus glass. Not only does this avoid racist undertones, but it also makes the game more accessible to blind and low vision users who would be able to feel the differences between their pieces and their opponents. Instead of having white go first every time, the player going first would be chosen by a dice roll. Both players roll the dice, and whoever rolls the highest number gets to go first. This ensures that there is a sense of randomness to who goes first, rather than positioning one side in color as being superior to the other. In the case of consecutive games, the size would alternate between going first, regardless of who wins or loses. Let's address the issue of class, ability, and value. Rather than pieces being differentiated along the lines of class, pieces would be differentiated by shapes. I hope you remember your high school geometry because it's coming back to haunt you now. The new pieces would include cones, cylinders, tetrahedrons, square pyramids, cubes, and an octahedron. The amount of spaces they would be able to move depends on the amount of flat faces each shape has. One, two, four, five, six, and eight, respectively. All pieces would be able to move in all directions. Gender would no longer be an issue in this game since none of the new shape pieces would be imbued with a particular gender. Pawn promotion and piece promotion in general would be eliminated. While I tried to think of a way to make the rule non-ableist, it is nearly impossible 
to get rid of the notion that a more mobile piece that can cover more ground, move in more directions, etc., is more desirable, and it is an inherently ableist as well as unnecessary rule. The ultimate goal of the game is to get as many pieces as you can to the other end of the board, while simultaneously preventing your opponent from doing the same to you. But do these proposals actually fix anything? Sure, gender is taken out of the equation, but refusing to incorporate an issue isn't the same as resolving it. The whole idea of getting your pieces to your opponent's end of the board while eliminating theirs introduces a stronger narrative of invasion and even colonization than the original rules ever did. And lastly, I'm no game theory expert. Who knows if these rules would actually lead to a satisfying and winnable game? I want this to be one of the greatest takeaways. There is no easy answer and there is no easy solution. We are obligated to question the societal structures that simultaneously are upheld by and limit us. We owe it to one another to recognize the differences in our experiences based on whatever marginalized groups one may or may not be a part of. But there is no easy answer. Progress is not an excuse for complacency. We must continue to not only move forward, but to move outwards and reach those that we may have never thought to reach before. Thank you.